Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. The thing about going to a pornographic film I discovered is that cinemas normally like to sit quite not too close to the screen. But if it's a porn film, they're all in the front rows. You can't get into the front rows. They're all there, <laughs> right eagerly, right at the front of the cinema. I was doing a show last year with Dame Judi Dench at the Gilgood Theatre in Shaftesbury Avenue, and outside the theatre, queuing to get a ticket, I think it was queuing to get a return ticket, was Cliff Richard. No. Isn't that sweet? He was just waiting. I mean, he could have come out and said, you know, if you've got any yeah. tickets, we'll sort you out. I said, this is going nowhere, you're going nowhere, it was a £100 company, you keep the rest of it, I'm off. Eight years later, he sold the company for £70 million. Pounds. <gasps> no! And that was in the 1970s, when oh £70 million goodness. Pounds was worth £70 million. Pounds. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is an author of more than a hundred books, a broadcaster, a knitwear designer and a former politician. A celebrated raconteur, he's touring the UK with his one-man show, Can't Stop Talking. And when he's not on the road, he lives in southwest London with his wife Michelle, who he's been married to for 50 years after they met as students at Oxford. And they share three children and seven grandchildren. Having become well-known on breakfast television in the 80s, in no small part thanks to his choice of knitwear, he's been a mainstay on television shows like The One Show, Countdown, Celebrity Gogglebox This Morning and Radio 4's Just A Minute. He's also the host of the award-winning podcast Something Rhymes With Purple with Susie Dent, who he befriended after becoming the most featured guest in Countdown history, making more than 300 appearances in her dictionary corner. 
At 74, he remains as curious and as busy as ever and proudly remains the world record holder of the world's longest ever after dinner speech. It was for charity and it was for 12 and a half hours. So this next hour should be a breeze for him. Let's dial him up, shall we? It's Giles Brandreth. How are you, sir? Well, I'm well, and I'm older than you think. Perhaps I'm older than... I, well, I'm not older than I look, as my wife reminds me every day. I'm actually 75 now. 75? Well, and I'm I conscious of... It doesn't matter. I, I would keep quiet about it, except I made a thing about it, because you mentioned my three children and seven grandchildren. Yeah. Well, the youngest of our grandchildren, who's six or seven now, seven, when he was born, he was born with a babyhood cancer and he had a pretty rough first couple of years of his life spending about a year in hospital mainly Great Ormond Street Hospital for children in London but the good news is that at the end of last year he had his all clear and I thought oh this is a time for celebration and a time for saying thank you to Great Ormond Street so I thought I've got a 75th birthday coming up why don't I try to raise £75,000 for Great Ormond Street so this is why I'm aware of when my birthday was, because it was in March. And we took the London Palladium Theatre and I invited theatrical dames that I know. I've, I've been doing a show on stage with Dame Judi Dench. Yes, I mean, so you are familiar with many a dame. I am familiar with them. I am. I'm so lucky. And I invited <laughs> a dozen of them to join me on the stage of the London Palladium. And we had the most amazing birthday party anybody could ever want because these great ladies of the theatre came and entertained me and, you know, 2,000 and more people in the audience. And it was fantastic. And uh, it really was uh, um, uh, the most magical occasion. And I, I can't tell you how remarkable they were. And they were mostly people of riper years, because you don't get made a dame when you're, you know, no. uh, uh, when you're a very young. And uh, I think the oldest, and you wouldn't mind me saying this, was a Dame Patricia Routledge who played Hyacinth Bouquet yes. on television. And she's about 94 now and she came on stage and the roar for her was extraordinary. But even, I mean, amazingly, uh, Joan Collins is now 90. I know she wouldn't want me to tell you this, but it is has been in the press, so people do know. <laughs> it's uh, not like you're outing her, Giles. <laughs> she, I know, I feel ashamed now. She was sensational. She had this idea herself. She came on and performed John Lennon's Imagine to my grandson uh, oh. on stage. It was just What's just your grandson's name? His name is Kit, K-I-T-T. He came on stage. He was happy to be on stage. Obviously, I checked with him and his mum and dad that he'd be comfortable about doing this. And we showed, and he was he was very proud, we showed the film footage of him. You know, when you have, you finish your chemo in the hospital, you ring the bell at the end of, you know, when you're, anyway, that we, we showed that on the, there wasn't a dryer in the house. And then on came Dame Joan Collins. We had them all. Dame Joanna Lumley, Dame Maureen Lipman, Dame Sheila Hancock, also 90. You name it, they were there. And, but to bring on the cake, because they all had to be photographed at the end. They all had to be photographed on the end. And while they're being photographed, I thought, what am I going to do while we're photographing these dozen dames to entertain the audience? So I invited my friend Bonnie Langford, who isn't a dame yet, but I hope but we'll surely. be in the course of time. It's she only came a matter on, of time. <laughs> and while the photographer was taking the photograph, she sang Flashbang Wallop. Um, <laughs> oh, what a picture, what a photograph. And then 
I'd forgotten there had to be a birthday cake. It was my birthday, so I had a dozen dames, literally more than a thousand years of theatrical history and experience on one stage at the same time. There they all were, and I thought there had got to be a birthday cake, and on came Christopher Biggins <laughs> as a pantomime dame wheeling the birthday cake. Brilliant. So Th- That's um, a hell of a bash. So it was. It was a hell of a bash, and I'm happy to say we raised... And rather more than a hundred, more in fact, more than a hundred thousand pounds. So it was good for the charity. It was good for well, it was good for everybody. It was lovely for the people in the audience, and it was just amazing for me. So I am a very blessed person. You really are, as is Kit and all that love him. That's fantastic news, really is. Um, please send touch wood. Of course, you have to go on taking your. Yeah, you know the tests every year and all that goes on. Um, it's a very interesting experience as well, in retrospect. And I was so impressed by the people in the hospital. And you know, if you are a parent with a child in a hospital like that, they expect one of the parents to stay overnight. Yeah. Um, and it was quite a grueling, grueling year for them um, as well, but a, a good outcome. So, what are we talking about? What's What's your first question? Well, Actually, Charles, probably the first question is, when are you going to shut up so I can ask no! the first question? You know, I'm doing this show. Wouldn't it be funny if I was the first person on your podcast who talked his time out and you hadn't yet put the first question? That would be quite funny. Uh, my, I said to my wife, what are, I've been to Edinburgh lots of times, and I said to my wife, what are we going to call the show this year? And she said, I've got the idea. I've got the right title, Charles. I said, really? What is it? And she said, it's going to be called this year. The show's going to be called Charles Brandreth Can't Stop Talking. <laughs> she, was, she got it in one. So you are, I mean, listen, how many shows are you touring this year before we get into my first question for you? Well, I've, I've taken on a little bit too much, I think, in some ways. Um, you mentioned my friend Susie Dent. Yes. She and I, we do a podcast um, Something well, Rhymes With Purple. Like, called Something Rhymes With Purple, which is all about words and language, which we've been doing now for oh, more than four, nearly five years, I think. Mm. And as you said, like, thank you, we won the award, best entertainment podcast it's about words and language and what i love about it what we both love about it is we built up an audience around the world um who call themselves the purple people and it's we just have fun we meet every week often on zoom like this sometimes in person but we also do live shows and we've been doing quite a few live shows in a theater well that's fun so i've been doing some live shows i've been doing some shows with dame judy dench Yes. We're doing one in Edinburgh. It's not worth talking about them because they always sold out. So it just gets people excited and they look up. Judy Dench, Charles Brown, oh, sold out. Irritates yeah. them. But you two are I'm something going... of a, a tried and tested double act, aren't you? Well, the truth is we've we've done it a few times now. And she, it's like being, she's magic. She She's 88 years of age. You wouldn't know it. We did one the other day at Hampton Court for charity, for a charity called the Queen's Reading Room. Queen That's Camilla right. is but very keen on reading, on encouraging people to read. But this celebrating is the Queen's the... Book Club, isn't it? It is. It's essentially the Queen's Book Club. She started it in lockdown and it's sort of grown and grown. And it's about spreading the joy of reading. And to, to raise money for the charity, we did this charity show. And we didn't expect the Queen to turn up necessarily, but she did. We didn't expect the King to turn up, but he did. In fact, um, he got there before her, didn't he? She was caught up in traffic. You are right. Oh, how you've you've got the goss on this. We were so relieved that he turned up because there was the he was VIP, a standing the VIP reception and no queen. But who came into the room but the king? Yeah, it was pretty damn good. But we had I'd already got lined up there on the stage, Joanna Lumley and Richard E. Grant as my substitute, uh, Charles and Camilla, <laughs> in the event 
that they, you know, the real royals didn't turn up. I thought this will, this is the next best thing. Goodness sake. Um, and I must say, Richard E. Grant actually looks more like the late Duke of Edinburgh. You know, he walks around with his hands behind his back. Um, Do you know, know, Giles, the last time I worked with, and the only time actually I've worked with Richard E. Grant was for our now King Charles. And it was to host a Prince's Trust birthday celebration televised. And I was doing a one-off edition of Blind Date. And I was playing Scylla. And the three men behind the screen hoping to be picked were Sir Roger Moore, Richard E. Grant, and Chico, an X Factor contestant that had been a former goat herder and stripper. And the picker was the late, great Barry Humphreys as Dame Edna Everidge. Can you imagine what kind of a night that was? I can imagine nothing (laughs) more wonderful. You've got four of my, well, you included five of my favourite people. Where can I, is this on YouTube? It will be on YouTube. Yes, it is on YouTube, you know, because... um, Somebody posted some stuff to me uh, upon the past, the sad passing of, of Barry Humphreys. So I was reminded of it. But yes, it was brilliantly funny. And my goodness, that man is has such good humour, doesn't he, Richard E. Grant? He, and well, Roger Moore, I have to say, played a blinder on the night. I will. I mean, I, I will tell you my Roger Moore story in a moment, if we have time, because I want to talk this out and never get to your questions. Uh, Barry Humphreys, I have to say, it was... For me, one of the two funniest human beings I've ever seen on stage, and I've been lucky enough, because I've lived a long time, to see a great many entertainers going back to people of the generation of Bob Hope live on stage. Barry Humphreys and Ken Dodd, two very different entertainers, were, for me, the funniest people to see live. I saw Barry live in New York about 25 years ago, uh, and I thought, I don't think I've ever seen anything more brilliant. He was doing, it was a day Medna evening. He was a genius. And his sense of danger, that tightrope he walked. Yes. It was fantastic. He was dangerously funny. And do you know what? It's so, it's so apt that you have just recounted him as one of your two funniest people. Because earlier today, I was driving, listening to an interview between Rob Brydon and Harry uh, Hill. And Harry uh, Hill was talking about the two funniest people he'd ever seen. delivering comedy on stage the first was Jimmy Tarbuck the second was you well does that come as a surprise because this takes me nicely I've I've actually I've actually silenced you brilliant you uh, you certainly I was never thinking of that Um, is this uh, Harry Hill this is this is Harry Hill comedian Harry Hill which I, I, I really have to make this my very first question to you because it's intriguing and, well, here we go. Are you ready, Giles? Here's your first question. Yeah. Harry Hill listed you after Jimmy Tarbuck as the funniest person he'd ever seen doing a comedy routine on stage. Um, he said it was you recounting a phone call that you had out of the blue that led to you sitting on Lord Longford's pornography commission alongside Cliff Richard. And he had me at porn commission. Um, I wanted to know what on earth happened and how you ended up on a porn commission with Cliff Richard and a host of other greats, by the way, a high court judge, I believe, two bishops and an archbishop, what the job entailed and when else you've had a phone call that's brought about the most unlikely of invitations. 
Well, I, I'm sorry that Harry Hill has brought this out into the public domain because I now know the occasion this was. This was a, a, a celebration, a benefit for Ronnie Corbett. Um, and it took That's place fine. about 25 years ago. And I don't know that one can now tell these sorts of stories. But since you've asked the question and Harry Hill has raised it, I don't think I have much choice. No. But uh, to set the scene, there was a man called Frank Longford. He was the Earl of Longford, who was a Knight of the Garter, among other things. The Knights of the Garter, this is the oldest uh, order of chivalry in the country. And the great and the good become Knights of the Garter, or indeed Ladies of the Garter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was appointed Knight of the Garter by Elizabeth II many years ago. He'd been a politician. He was a member of Clement Attlee's government after the Second World War, later a member of Harold Wilson's government. He was a Labour peer. He was also a prison reformer, a great social reformer. Um, lovely man, a bit of a frost at parties, though, because he liked to bring Mara Hindley with him. Um, what? In that he, 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 he believed in being a friend to the friendless. And, for example, he would visit prisons and he would visit people like Mara Hindley, one of the Moors murderers, because he believed, he really believed in it. He was a Catholic convert, I think, a saintly man, a very good man. And in the late 1960s, early 1970s, he became really obsessed with the scourge of pornography in our society. And he decided to run a campaign, well, to have an investigation of what damage pornography could do to us. And nowadays, interestingly enough, people would probably agree with him. But then, in the you know coming out of the uh, free and easy 1960s, people thought anything goes and uh, let it all hang loose, let it all hang out. Pornography, why not? Make it available to everybody. But he wasn't so sure. He thought that maybe it was debasing to the people, the men and the women, who were asked to be in the pornography, and he didn't, wasn't sure that it was good for people. But he wanted to do some research into this. And he set up this pornography commission, much mocked. He was called Lord Porn. I mean, he was a figure of fun. Uh, Anyway, he set up this commission, and one day I received a telephone call. And the voice said, this is Frank Longford. And I said, pull the other one. And he said, no, no, this really is Frank Longford. I'm setting up this commission to investigate the scourge of pornography in our society. And I've already got a bishop and an archbishop, a rabbi, and uh, I'm looking for some younger people. Uh, Cliff Richard has said yes. Would you say yes as well? So Cliff Richard and I, the bishop, the archbishop, the rabbi, we all gathered at a room at London University. Lord Longford welcomed us, and then he distributed the filthy magazines. And we sat there, uh, the bishop, the archbishop, the rabbi, me, Cliff Richard, in a circle with Lord Longford, flicking through these disgusting magazines, going, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, oh, no, oh, oh, no, oh, oh, rabbi, look, one of yours, I think. Anyway, this went on. For, for for several months, these so gatherings. You would, but what would you discuss? Would you discuss its contents, the ramifications? Well, what were the conversations yes. as you sat there and pulled uh, pulled apart the pages? Well, we 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 did. We we pulled apart the it was the pages merely that we pulled apart. Um, we tut tutted and we agreed that this you know well to some people's taste, not to everybody's taste. But we had to sort of feel how feel what was going on. We then, but it, we extended beyond that. We then had to go, we went out into the streets and we went to see lewd films. I mean, I remember, and, and he had other young people. I remember going with a student nurse to see a film in a sleazy place somewhere off Piccadilly Circus. 
um, you know, it was called sort of Beat Me Twice or something. It was a dreadful <laughs> title. And I sat there, desperately embarrassed with this student nurse. And the thing about going to a pornographic film I discovered is that cinemas, normally you like to sit quite not too close to the screen. But if it's a porn film, they're all in the front rows. You can't get into the front rows. They're all there, right <laughs> eagerly, right at the front of the cinema. And um, we were sitting at the back, the nurse and I. Uh, of course, she, being a nurse, she'd seen it all before. But yeah. some of it was a bit of a revelation to me. Then we went to Copenhagen to reap the alien porn. We travelled as a kind of investigative trip. Yeah, this was this was because at the time I think it was it was being advertised as Sin City, Copenhagen, the most permissive place on earth. And that's exactly right. That's right, isn't it? And, and apparently, on the flight out, Lord Longford read the Bible, and didn't lift his eyes from the page. You've said previously. You said he said to you, "I am preparing myself for the ordeal we are going to have to face, Giles," as he well, nosed his way through the Bible. You're absolutely right. I mean, I wrote about this in my diary and said this is in the public domain. He did. Uh, and he was very sweet. We got the other end. And there, I think, was the British ambassador welcoming to greet, there to greet us all. And I think he gave us all a fiver or maybe even £10 in Danish krona, um, which he said would be more than enough to see what we'd come to see, which was the live intercourse. He said, oh. you know, for a tenner, you can certainly get the live intercourse. You could, I'm sorry to tell you, you could get bestiality for a tenor. Uh, yeah. Mm. Oh, it's awful. It's, the whole thing is awful. Uh, but what is interesting is that the press at the time was sending it the whole thing up. And now, with a distance of 50 years, yeah. uh, uh, we take we take a totally different view. Um, anyway. Be- because he wasn't, a bit, you know, he wasn't a prude, this man. He had previously taken you out for lunch and explained to you that, you know, he had a, he had a, a healthy enjoyment of sex because he was a horse rider and he explained to you that people that ride tend to love having very active sex lives. Indeed, and that he told me that on the day after he'd been with the Queen being made a Knight of the Garter because he said, you know, people like the Queen and myself who are keen on riding, we do have a very healthy approach to sex. And he said, and, and I also, I swim naked. It's marvellous. He said, I don't think the Queen swims naked. The Duke of Edinburgh might, he said to me. <laughs> I don't think he knew. So, so this this guy wasn't whilst he had um a very strong moral compass. He wasn't you know, he wasn't dyed in the wool as 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 being kind of, you know, anti anybody being able to live and let love. This was about exploitation, the, exactly. the wider ramifications within society. He was very much in favour of real love. And his anxiety was that people as it were, who might be playing the field or having what was then called free sex might be ruining their opportunities for for proper love. He believed in relationships. That's what he cared. He was a very caring, thoughtful and sweet man. Of course, he was of his generation, of his time, and he didn't... He he thought... And and he wanted, for example, sex to be within marriage. That would... He was a Catholic. That was his approach. So... But he also felt he had to go and see what was going on. So I, I do recall going to this sex dive with him and where all the, the hostesses, and they were hosts as well, they were naked. As we arrived, the live intercourse was taking place. Wow. We, we sat there quite close to the front, um, looking, well, me, I was looking mainly at my knees. Cause it, <laughs> anyway, we suddenly realised that around uh, coming, descending on us, was this naked Danish dolly bird um, with a whip. Uh, and I was 22, 23, Lord Longford was 72, 73, and she was coming towards him with this whip when she was stroking his bald pate. 
and I could see she was going to land in his lap, and then there were lots of press photographers there. You know, it would have been click, flash, <laughs> literally flash, wallop, and around the world would go pictures of naked English milord with naked Danish dolly in his lap. So he got up and left. I followed him, and he said to the press, a good line, he must have thought it out beforehand, I've seen enough for science and more than enough for pleasure. Uh, Giles, <laughs> if, you want, if you want to stay, do feel free to stay. I said, no, 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 Lord Longford, I'll come with Where you. Where was Cliff in all uh, of this? Did Cliff get to go to Copenhagen? No, I don't. No. Cliff didn't come with us to Copenhagen. Cliff came to the meetings in London, and I loved sitting next to Cliff because I'd never seen anybody who dressed as beautifully as Cliff dressed. He, the velvet jackets, the silk scarves, he was a looker. He still is. He still is, Funny yeah. Enough, I, I reminded him, I saw Cliff the other day, what a lovely man he is. I was doing a show last year with Dame Judy Dench at the Gilgood Theatre in Shaftesbury Avenue, and outside the theatre, queuing to get a ticket, I think he was queuing to get a return ticket, was Cliff Richard. No. Is that sweet? He was just waiting there. I mean, he could have come on and said, you know, if you've got any yeah. tickets, we'll sort you out. So we sent a message out saying, Cliff, please come round afterwards and say hello. And um, uh, he was slightly embarrassed. He said, oh, I don't think Judy Dench would want to meet me. Uh, so I met him in the corridor afterwards and I said, Judy Dench is looking forward to meeting you. Oh. And I said, as you go in, feel free to sing congratulations. <laughs> but as he went in, guess what he did sing? Devil Woman. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. Touche, He's Cliff. No yeah. Touche. Touche so, Cliff. so, I mean, obviously, that that one phone call from from the late Lord uh, led to, well, you know, what an, what, what an adventure, if nothing else. But when else has the phone rung uh, with the most unlikely of invitations for you, Giles? Oh, goodness. Is this the second question? This is quite a good test for me because with, the, with this Can't Stop Talking show... Normally with a show, and I've done several at Edinburgh. Edinburgh's changed my life in many ways. I'm going to the Edinburgh Fringe for August, and then I'm taking the show on tour. I prepare a show with a you know beginning, middle, end, a shape uh, on a theme. The last one I did was called Break a Leg. It was all about the theatre. I've done one about language, as you can things that interest me. Yeah. Uh, and but with Can't Stop Talking, m- my wife said, "Look, you do this radio show called Just a Minute. Maybe." you should invite the audience to tell you what they... You go out there and blather on. Idea. Maybe they should decide what you talk yeah. about. And I've been doing some pilot shows, and what I've ended up with at the moment is a menu, and I get somebody onto the stage, and I give them a menu with a starter, main course and pudding, and uh, they get an option. Uh, they can choose one That's starter, one main idea. course, one pudding. And it does... So it means they get something different every night. So if they don't want... You know, they offered politics stories, theatre stories, royal stories. They can't have all of them. They've got to choose one. Though, interestingly, among the puddings is always a potluck. And potluck is where it's thrown open to the audience. And anybody in the audience can ask anything they like. And if their minds go blank, they have to call out any letter of the alphabet. And I'm then obliged to talk on something from that letter of the alphabet. Oh, that's But I haven't got anybody choosing potluck yet. Because on the puddings as well as being potluck and a variety of other things, poetry, for example, um, I, I'd put rough sex. <laughs> well, that's going to get an order every time, surely. Yeah, now, that's we're... the point. Everybody <laughs> wants rough sex. <coughs> well, I've um, just had a plate full of porn, so I can't take any rough sex right now. No, I, how? Oh, I'm very relieved. So come <laughs> to the show and then you can order that if I choose you. OK, well, listen, let me park the second part of that question and let me put this to the test. Let's see if your wife's onto something oh, here. I'm going to throw um, something at you and let's see how you roll with it for question number two. 
despite having accrued a wealth of experience in so many pockets of life, can we talk about the experiences that would have, could have, or should have been? The missed opportunities, if you like. You once recalled, and I'm going to quote you now, when I was 17 and he was 16, Richard Branson wrote to me because we both oh. edited school magazines and we met because he wanted to start a new magazine and begin a new joint magazine empire together. Anyway, I turned him down because I was off to university and planned to be prime minister. So I got that one wrong. When else has an opportunity like that fallen through your fingers, Giles? Well, he wrote to me, Richard Branson, at school because we both edited school magazines and said meet up. And we met up at his parents' flat somewhere near Marble Arch, as I remember. And he was a year younger than me. And he felt, he seemed like he was, he couldn't stop moving. He was jumping all over the place. He had long hair. And he was like a sort of baboon or a monkey swinging from the, almost swinging from the chandelier around the house. I mean, he was just, never stopped moving. And I thought, this fellow's got some vitus dance. I mean, he won't sit still. Anyway, he explained his idea. And I could see he was dynamic. Um, and I was in some ways excited by being with him. But I said, what about university? He said, what about university? I said, well, aren't you going to university? He said, no, I'm leaving school. He said, you're going to leave school too? I said, no, I'm, I'm, I've done my A-levels. I'm going to go and I'm hoping to go to Oxford University. He said, oh, what Oxford? What's the point of that? He said, did Winston Churchill go to Oxford? I said, I don't know. No, I don't think he did. He said, you know, did Joan of Arc go to Oxford? I said, no, no, I agree. She said, well, you know, what's the point of going to Oxford then? I said, well, you know. Um, and it was clear that it wasn't going to work out. But we would have had a business together. And it's very frustrating. And something similar then happened to me again later because um, I said goodbye to Richard. I do occasionally see him and he's always very courteous. He waves at me from inside his um, palace. Beautiful, <laughs> uh, you know, beautiful racing green Bentley. He lowers the window slowly. And I, so I can really see is half like, his face. Here's what you could have had. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As, I'm as he going departs down, for his private island in the Caribbean. I'm trying to find my way to the circle line. <laughs> he is exactly on his way to his own Virgin Island. Yeah. I mean, you can't believe it. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, and I can't even get a, you know, I, I try to mention his name. When I go on a virgin flight, you know, I'm Nothing. hoping to turn left instead of right. I, I, I begin to tell this story. They say, no, steer it with the rest of the people. <laughs> but I think I, I'm not a business person. That's what I've decided. I had a very good friend that I was, um, that I knew at university, and we put on Sonne Lumière together. You know what Sonne Lumière is? No. Sound and light. It's the French for sound and light. And Sonne Lumière was huge around the world and in England. Basically, you took an old building and you lit it beautifully with the wonderful lighting. And then you got great actors to tell the story of that building. It still operates in Egypt. If you go to see the pyramids, mm. they do a big Sonne Lumière there. It was huge in France. It was pioneered by a French person. And then it came to Britain. And I put on Sonne Lumière in Britain, which is why you haven't heard of it. It was huge. <laughs> until I became involved. We did the first one. You were the kiss of at, death. I was. You literally the turned the death. lights out. <laughs> I did. At Temple Newsome House in Leeds. Um, and I think the local authority, I've still, litigation is still going on, even though this was 50 years ago. They're trying to get the money back that I lost for them. They kindly sponsored this Sonny Lumiere at Temple Newsome House. I didn't realise it was out of doors. We put the audience under a roof, corrugated iron roof, in case there was occasional rain. We didn't expect hailstones. This is because I'd never spent August in Leeds before. 
Had I done so, I'd have realised it's part of the norm there. Hailstones. The rain we could have coped with. The hailstones. You could not hear the song <laughs> for the hailstones clattering on the corrugated iron roof. You couldn't see the building for the rain sleeting across the stage. Terror. Total disaster. But the next year, we thought, let's go bigger. It, when, you're, when you're in, just go dig deeper. So we went to Royal Greenwich. Uh, uh-huh. The story of Royal Greenwich. Kings, queens, astronomers, royal. And the opening night at Royal Greenwich must have been about nine, between 1970 and 74 because I remember Edward Heath was the Prime Minister. And somewhere I'd persuaded Edward Heath to come to this with the Spanish Prime Minister. So we have the opening of this show with the British Prime Minister, the Spanish Prime Minister at uh, Royal Greenwich. And this year, I'm no fool. I know the weather can be not very good in August. A tarpaulin roof. <laughs> no corrugated iron for me. On the night in question, the greatest wind that London has known <laughs> in a hundred years. It lifted the tarpaulin from its moorings. The tarpaulin flew into the air and it fell, literally, on top <laughs> of the heads of the two prime ministers and their bodyguards. No! Yes. They immediately got their bodyguards, ripped the tarpaulin off. The prime ministers were rushed into their cars and swept away. The rest of the performance was cancelled. So that is how I killed Sonny Lumia. Now, the point of the story is this. My friend Colin Sanders, who was my partner in this venture, uh, founded a company called Solid State Logic. Using the keyboards, the desks, to operate the lighting and the sound that Mm. we had created together. We had owned this company together. The point of the story is, I said, this is going nowhere, you're going nowhere, it was a £100 company, you keep the rest of it, I'm off. Eight years later, he sold the company for £70 million. Pounds. <gasps> no! And that was in the 1970s, when oh £70 million goodness. Pounds was worth £70 million. Pounds. Wow. Yep. True story. He very oh, kindly did, in, he did invite me, because he when I had another business venture... To his island? <laughs> Yeah, no, well, even better. To I think he invited me to Ro- to Verona in his private jet. <laughs> in his private jet. Yes. And I went, even though it terrified me. Jeez, um, so. you, you really have looked the proverbial gift horses in the mouth I have. and then walked so, away. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a very good business person. But the reason that I survive, well, this is what people say to me, why at your age, Charles, are you still working? And I explain, I need to, I need the money. I've got three children, seven grandchildren, you know, I've discovered over the years, money is the one thing keeping me in touch with them. So I've got to go <laughs> on earning. And so uh, I'm a freelance, you're a freelance, aren't you? Yes, I am, yeah. Yeah. I, lo- I work because I love it, and I'm very lucky to be able to say that. And I'm guessing that for all of... Um, all of what you, for all that you've just said, actually, you still love it, Giles. This is what you love to do. Would you be happy flying around with spreadsheets in the back of your own private jet? I don't know. Would you? No, no, I wouldn't. I'd be frightened of the private jet. Um, I certainly, I wouldn't want a helicopter. I've looked at the detail. I'm, tragically, my friend, Colin Sanders, died in a helicopter accident uh, after a night flying lesson. Um which is a, a tragedy. He was a lovely, a great man. Uh, so his story has a, a sad ending, though I'm, I'm lucky that I know his widow and love her and we're still good friends. I wouldn't want to be with the spreadsheets 
in an aeroplane. Um, I'm not very good with money, which is why I was so happy when I was at the Treasury. <laughs> <laughs> Surrounded with people who weren't say. very good with money either. Yes, um, but that's a di- that's a different story. No, uh, I like working because when I was a little boy, um, I was at a school and the headmaster, Mister Stocks, remember his name? You know, we all have these teachers, don't we, in our lives? And we mm. call them Mister Stocks or Miss Miss So and So, Mrs. So. Anyway, Mister Stocks. I remember him saying to me, "I can see where I was standing and where he was sitting when he said this." Um, he was an old headmaster. He was 80 years old. Uh, and he said, Brandreth, I've uh, just got one thing to say to you, one thing for you to remember in life. And it was this. Uh, and I think it's just five words. Busy people are happy people. Mm. That's all he said. Busy people are happy people. And I remember that. And that's been my experience. So like you, you're lucky enough to be busy. I'm lucky enough to be busy. Yeah. And we're lucky enough to be paid for our work. You call it work. I mean, you know, Hardly call what I do work, but it, I certainly turn up. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Are you ready for your third and final question? Oh, well, there's one more question. Yes, there's I am. There's one more. I know that you are, as we've established, able to wax lyrical on pretty much any subject. But one I'd love to hear more about from, from you is your life and times spent living on Baker Street. It's a street that has been made famous in song, made famous by having a very famous resident, Sherlock Holmes. But it's a street that you called home for the best part of your life, really, didn't you? Well, this is, I now see why your podcast is so successful. I I couldn't understand how it had had so many downloads and views. I thought, you know, what's this about? Um, Because you're asking interesting questions and you get me, somebody like me, off automatic pilot. Uh, Because... I that I will take about. as a compliment, Giles. Thank you. Uh, well, it's intended as one. Um, it's giving me time to think about Baker Street. Baker Street has been part of my life, almost mm, the whole of my life. When I was a little yeah. boy, 
my parents lived in two blocks of flats. I was brought up in London, and I lived in mansion flats. They were called mansion flats, built in the late Victorian Edwardian era. And my father was born in 1910, almost an Edwardian. He was actually born just after Edward VII had died. But the Victorian Edwardian era has always meant a lot to me. My father almost... I, the reason I talk in this plummy way is because that's how my father talked. And I think he talked like his father talked. And we lived in these Edwardian Victorian flats with high ceilings. And we I remember vividly moving to the one in Baker Street because the first literary love of my life was undoubtedly the works of Arthur Conan Doyle, the Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm. And I found I had a bedroom that overlooked 221B Baker Street. So I mean, we were told. That's where we believed it was. Yeah. I now reckon it was a little bit... It's where the Abbey National Building used to be. I now reckon, having done more research into Sherlockian studies, it was probably somewhere else along Baker Street. But that meant a great deal to me, the idea of being there. And my parents then moved into another block of flats called Chiltern Court, where there, funny enough, that's an interesting block, is the block immediately above Baker Street Tube Station. Interesting people have lived in that block. Arnold Bennett, who wrote my favourite novel called The Old Wives' Tale. In 1904, one of the great years in the history of literature, I think Chekhov wrote The Cherry Orchard that year. I think J.M. Barry created Peter Pan that year, one of the greatest plays ever written. It's informed my entire life. <laughs> Who do you think you are? Tinkerbell! No, I think I'm <laughs> Peter Pan. I don't want to grow up. I'm totally happy being um, still quite childlike. Being childish is a different matter. But anyway, 1904, um, brilliant year. So uh, Arnold Bennett lived there. I think H.G. Wells lived there for a while. And in the flat next door to us lived Huey Green. Have you heard no of Huey Green? No way. Huey Green. Knox Huey Green, who also we later discover the father of... Of Paulie Yates. Paulie Yates. Yes. Yes. Bizarre. But he was kind of... Um, gosh, who would, who would you say he is the, the today's equivalent? Well, he was kind of like Anton Deck in one, wasn't he? He was. He was the host Anton of, of Opportunity Knox, which was the Britain's Got Talent of his day. It was. And yeah. he hosted a, variety, a number of shows like that. He was yeah. Canadian by birth, and he loved model railways. I, I, I didn't, wasn't interested in model railways, but my younger brother, I had a brother who was ten years younger than me, loved the model railway. And Huey Green, who was always very nice with us, very friendly, and very pleasant, um, uh, like a, a nice uncle, he um, allowed my brother to spend hours looking at Huey Green's train set. He was never allowed to touch it, but he would watch <laughs> Huey changing the points and polishing the engines, and so my brother could just stand there observing. Staring on... Wow. I mean, it was quite the neighbourhood, wasn't it, Charles? It really was, because you then had the Beatles open the um, the Apple... Was the Apple Store? It's not the Apple Store as we know it now. At the corner of Chilton Street and Baker Street, they opened a shop called the Apple Shop, I think. Yeah. And it had an apple, but without not looking like the current Apple logo. Though I think there was some agreement between... Apple, their record company. It wasn't and dissimilar. Apple, right at the beginning. It wasn't yeah. dissimilar, and I think they came to terms about it many, many years ago. I, I say that because I have a son who is an intellectual property lawyer and has his <laughs> finger on the pulse when it comes nice to one. these things. But that is how I managed to meet the Beatles. I, I mean, my life has been one... People think this is ridiculous, when I, you know, I love name-dropping, but I do it partly as a joke, partly to send myself up, but also because I think it's 
really quite exciting. It is. Um, you grew I mean, up uh, looking in in the bedroom window of what you thought was was the residence of Sherlock Holmes. You were living in the same block as Huey uh, Green, and then you were shopping at the Beatles store while the Beatles were there. I mean, everything was tangible to you. That must have made you know as a child that was raised in the country. You know, um, the, the only thing I had that was close to that was Eddie the Eagle Edwards in the Cotswolds. Oh, it's marvellous. <laughs> They're not comparable, Giles. But did you meet him? Did you meet Eddie? <laughs> oh, you didn't even meet him? Oh, I, he and I were old muckers. At the, oh, one, I hear he's the, lovely. One of the joys of being at TVM in the 1980s is you met everybody. Everybody came through the doors of TVM. So I met Eddie the Eagle. And I remember the day sitting on the sofa at TVAM, there was me, Roland Rat. And Willy Brandt, the Chancellor of West Germany. The three of us on the sofa at the same time. Ridiculous, but glorious. <laughs> this is what I mean. Your, your wonderfully ridiculous life. And, and I think so much of your appetite for it must have come surely from being a resident of Baker Street, where all of this was on your doorstep. It was. It was right in the centre of London. There was also at one end, there was a bookshop called Bumpus Books, where you could buy wonderful books. And at the other end was Regent's Park. And I would go to the open-air theatre in Regent's Park, and that's where I fell in love with um, open-air Shakespeare. Well, I, well, I already loved Shakespeare, but I just have to see in the open-air. You know, it was opened... Um, it was reopened by Sir John Gielgud, lovely actor, mm. great classical actor. Um, I'll, I might tell you my story about... Glenda Jackson, who was a marvellous woman. We lost last recently. week. What a, oh, what a huge oh, shame. Great shame, but what a life. What a life. What a woman. What, what, a, what a person. I mean, she was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. What but a anyway, human being she was, eh? She was a fabulous human being. We'll talk more about her. Uh, and I really liked her, and she got on quite well with me. And it's interesting that we got on so well, because she was a very serious human being. Um, anyway, so John Gielgud... When Glenda and I invited him for lunch on his 90th birthday to the House of Commons, because we were both MPs at the time, he came 90 years of age, ramrod back, wonderful posture. But he was a curious mixture, really. He was a, both a Roman senator and an Edwardian dandy at the same time. <laughs> and we said to him, you know, Sir John, we are so honoured that you, the great classical actor of the 20th century, should choose to come and have luncheon with us on your 90th birthday. He said, oh, my dears, I'm delighted. You see, all my real friends are dead. <laughs> It's, 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 she lived a, a long and a full life, and it was a privilege to know her. And I, with some people I, I know well, I, I don't claim a great intimacy with Glenda, but we became allies at the House of Commons because we became MPs on the same day in 1992. And because, of course, she was a great international film star, Oscar winner, double Oscar winner, I think, Emmy winner, Tony yeah. Award winner, and I was a bit of a daytime TV person. But we were both outsiders. And we arrived there, and it was like arriving at a kind of Victorian boys' public school. And because she was so famous, I think a lot of people on her side, the Labour people, weren't very comfortable about approaching her. And so she was a bit of a loner, and I was a bit of a loner. And we found ourselves taking tea together, and she couldn't bear it. We would go into the tea room, and all the Labour people would sit at one end, and all the Conservatives at another end. And it was the same in the dining room as well. She thought, this is ridiculous. And she hated the chamber because of all the yaboo that went on. So we formed a kind of friendship. And then, because I knew she admired Sir John so much and she loved Shakespeare, we had that in common as well. I think you were also quite... Um, I think you shared an appetite for disruption in as much as you like you were able to go in and disrupt 
conversations for it or just disrupt the status quo because as you've just said you know there were the two of you sat together two different political parties uh, that you represented with conservatives at one end of the room and and you know and, and, the, and her, her labor mps at the other but you two came together she, she, she was very shocked about time. that until i told her but don't worry the liberal democrats they wait at table she thought that was quite <laughs> funny she didn't like them much either <laughs> But she was a really she she was a political animal though she was a, she was passionate about it. Um, she was in a, a change maker in an maker. impressive way. Yeah. She she was a change maker. Uh, my only contribution really, a couple of contributions. One was one day when I was working at the Department of National Heritage, now called Culture, Media and Sport. I walked through Trafalgar Square and saw that empty plinth, and I thought we could put something on that. And as a result of that, we now have that, that all those wonderful, well, some people think some of them are wonderful, some of them aren't, but they're changing sculptures on the on the plinth. Were you part of the team that Pruleith, Dame Pruleith was? It, it, it was my idea to bring on Pruleith. I, I went into the department. She spoke about this when she came on the show recently, Giles. Well, there you really are. really interesting. The, 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 we gave her that job. I came into the department one day oh. and said there's this empty plinth and I did all my jokes about, you know, who's it going to be Plinth Philip or Plinth Charles on it? All that. <laughs> uh, and I asked the permanent secretary, um, I said, you know, what can you tell us? Are we responsible for this square? And he said, yes. And it's been empty since Victorian times. And I said, well, could we put something on it? And he said, well, it's got to be a historic figure. I said, what about Margaret Thatcher? That did not go down well. He said, yeah. well, you can see it's Trafalgar Square, tra- you know, military league, Nelson's. I said, well, what about Margaret Thatcher in her tank in the Falklands? He didn't like that idea at all. Um, so then I thought, well, maybe in the fullness of time, it might be that the Queen, the late Queen Elizabeth II, would be there in her uniform, you know, as drooping of the colour. And so I thought, in the interim, what can we do? And so we thought, let's get a team together to think about this. And at the time, Prue Leith, who I knew, um, had just become the president or the chair of the Royal Society of Arts and Manufacturers. Um, It's called the RSA, the Royal Society of Arts, but it actually is and Manufacturers. And we gave it to her and her team, and they came up with the idea of this um, rotating series of artworks. So, yes... So that's a nice and, thing. And that's something done. she remains, you know, as she as she was talking to me in her eighty third year, eighty three, eighty four, uh, she talked about that as one of her great achievements. So, it's a great, it is a great achievement. Yeah. Well done, well done, her. She sees the opportunity that we gave her, and we're very lucky. I but think well she's done, marvelous. you too. She looks so good. Yes, yes, actually, uh, for finding the right else. person for the job. There you go. It was a, the other the other. My other little claim to fame is again when I was an MP, same time as the plinth. I uh, introduced the 1994 Marriage Act, which is the legislation that for the first time enabled people in England to get married in a a civil wedding outside a register office. Until then, you had to be in a register office. Now, stately home, castle, historic house, that was my private member's bill, piece of legislation that I introduced. So those well, are very my... nice too. Well, look at look at the impact that's had. Because you actually you you were married not far from from where you were born and raised. You got you got uh, married around the corner in Baker Street. We we lived we lived when when my wife and I got bought our first flat. It was just off Baker Street. Um, how extraordinary that you it, took no, her home. This, but but wait for this. Wait for this. We've bought the flat and then the doorbell rang, 
And somebody said, um, is this the apartment where the great uh, T.F. Eliot lived? I said, you mean T.S. Eliot, the poet? <laughs> they said, yes. The flat we bought turned out no. once to have been the home of T.S. Eliot. Oh, I bet you thought you uh, died and gone to heaven. Well, almost, because, but not quite, because, again, when I was seven years of age uh, and a server at a church called St Stephen's in Gloucester Road, another part of London, one of the sidesmen was T.S. Eliot. And when I'd read the lesson at the Christmas Carol concert as a little boy, uh, the, the vicar, well, it was a high Anglican church, Father Howard, he was called Father Howard, introduced me to T.S. Eliot and said, this is the great poet T.S. Eliot, who made conversation with me. And um, I asked him about his poetry, because I was a well-brought-up child, and obviously he didn't talk about any of his great poems, but he talked about his Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. And he encouraged me to learn one of the poems, and so for T.S. Eliot, I learnt Macavity. Macavity's a mystery cat. He's called the Hidden Paw, for he's the master criminal who can defy the law. He's the battlement of Scotland Yard, the flying squad's despair, for when they reach the scene of crime, Macavity's not there. And I performed that first for wow. T.S. Eliot himself. And you still remember it? I do. Giles, I struggle to remember what I had for breakfast. You're amazing. Well done. <laughs> well, I tell you, learning poetry by heart's a wonderful thing, and I have a project now. I'm going to plug anything. should really be plugging my new podcast, starting later in the year with an intriguing name, Rosebud. That's all. I just lay it there. People can think about it. It won't be till the autumn that you discover what it means. But okay. um, I will so mention this. A, a project I've got called Poetry Together where we get children, school-aged children, to learn a poem by heart, like I did, Macavity. And then we get old people, like T.S. Eliot was in his 70s then, uh, to learn the same poem by heart. And we then bring the old people in their care homes together with the young people from their schools, where they have tea, cake, and they have a poetry slam. They perform the same poem together at the same time. And we've been doing this for about 10 Poetry years slam. now. Poetry slam, that's great. And it's fantastic. The old, we did one a few years ago at the, the Army Museum and there was an old soldier in his 90s who did a war poem by Siegfried Sassoon with a 13-year-old boy. They took alternate lines. It was so moving. And it's fantastic. And we do this and we've been wonderfully supported by uh, Queen Camilla who, who came one year and she did Hilaire Belloc's poem Matilda about a naughty girl <laughs> called Matilda. Um, with a group of seven-year-olds. She'd learnt it by heart. They'd learned. I, I love... I mean, it's a very good way to get to sleep, to try and remember the poems from your childhood yeah. um, and repeat them. Uh, and to learn new poems, it's a fantastic way of... You know, there's research that shows when you get to my age, you can help your synapses keep supple by yeah. learning poetry by heart. It's a workout, you, isn't it, for the mind? Yeah. Brilliant. You are endlessly fascinating, Giles. And... I really hope that um, you don't ever slow down or say no to opportunities that come your way because there's very few people that can kind of turn their hands to anything and you are absolutely one of them. I've also really enjoyed reading um, some of your book, Elizabeth, An Intimate Portrait, looking at the life of our late monarch. And, and I would encourage people, if you do have any interest in the history of the royal family, uh, to, to go to your work because you're so well connected and 
and you love it and you write so beautifully. Um, so thank you very much for finding an hour to come and answer three thought-provoking questions with me today. Well, it's been my thank you, pleasure. Kate, for taking me occasionally out of my comfort zone. Because if, if anyone has bothered to listen to the end of this, um, you will know, if you've heard me before, that I've said things today that I don't normally say. She's taken me, yeah, out of my comfort zone. Oh. For more insightful chat with great raconteurs, why not dive into our back catalogue where you'll find episodes with fellow language lover Tom Reed Wilson, Alistair Campbell, Jess Phillips MP, comedian Adam Hills, uh, Al Murray, Bonnie Langford, who you heard Giles mention there, Christopher Biggins is also in our back catalogue, Emma Barnett and the poet Lem Sisse. And I'll be back with you for another midweek mini episode on Tuesday with something from the cellar, some vintage cuts from some of our vintage guests, all residing in the White Wine Question Time cellar. And don't forget, there'll be a brand new episode dropping next Friday. Until then, thanks for your company. White Wine Question Time is a stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network. 